you know, one thing that I learned both politically before this, but also through personal experience being a victim of crime, is that the court exists for the benefit of the defendant, not for the benefit of the victim, actually. Of course, you know, the court's there to give the defendants due process. Right. Due process, yeah. exactly. Welcome to the Catrone Zone. Uh, we're back. It's another Friday with our uh, track coach and the last Marxist, Chris Catrone. Um, yesterday, I uh, interviewed uh, Fakri Al-Sawadi, I think is his name, and he, he is a, a new member of the Platypus Affiliate Society. Mm. And uh, we we're discussing whether or not we considered ourselves to be Marxists or not. And he said to me, there's only one Marxist. It is Chris Catrone, the last Marxist. <laughs> right. So the neither cult of us is working. Yeah, I, I said that sounds a little bit too much like a cult of personality for me. I'm not sure. I know Chris, great guy. Wouldn't want to saddle him with the responsibility of being the only Marxist in the world. But perhaps it's perhaps it's true, Chris, because what we're going to talk. True. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be a strange thing. This is the way that I always put it. So since I started my blog for Platypus, The Last Marxist, many years ago, just to be able to compile my writings that mm -hmm. aren't published in the PR necessarily in the Platypus Review and, mm -hmm. you know, recordings of things that I did that aren't otherwise available. And I, you know, I was super ironic about it. But also right. there's something kind of tragic about it, right? So, you know, the fact that it might fall to us Mm. let's just say like i don't you and i doug let's say that we are the last marxist yeah i, I need your endorsement chris let everyone know i'm right? also so let's <laughs> let's um let's grant that but mm. you know uh i think humanity's in trouble <laughs> if that's the case then humanity might be in trouble so like i didn't i didn't seek out this uh position you know of being the last mm. marxist i don't welcome it I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but I do feel like, okay, I have something to contribute to the world. And the question, the real question is, does Marxism have anything to contribute to the world? Not does, not do I have something to contribute to the world as the last Marxist, but is Marxism going to be useful? Well, I ask you to come on again. Of course, we do this every couple of weeks, um, every two weeks, hopefully. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about why the left is necessary right and what it means that there isn't a left for right. politics in general uh -huh. um <clears throat> oh i thought we could talk about the american revolution in the left which is the i think that's the last essay final essay in the death and millennial left. left which by the way i should point out is available uh, as a print edition you know paper you could get it as an ebook and now as an audiobook um, uh -huh. in fact i, I may run a, a short clip from the audiobook in this episode uh so that people can get a sense of what i'm like as an audiobook narrator and uh -huh. how important the you know how good it is the the audiobook trump's election gave the left something to do they should be grateful they would have been bored under hillary especially after eight years of obama fascism is much more exciting isn't it but i would have been grateful if hillary had been elected instead saturday night lives jokes about hillary are much funnier than about trump my family voted for Trump, mostly. My mother and brother and his wife voted for Trump. But my father voted for Hillary. When Hillary collapsed due to fatigue from pneumonia, 
my father dutifully went to get his pneumonia shot. But my mother previously had voted twice for Obama. I'm not sure if my father did too. He might have voted for McCain and Romney. In the primaries, I intended to vote for Bernie, but it turned out the Democrats sent the wrong ballots to my precinct, which was more likely to vote for Bernie than other precincts. I thus personally witnessed in action the Democrats' suppression of votes for Bernie in the primaries. So I went to the empty Republican line and voted for Trump. In November, too, I knew that Hillary would win Illinois, but I wanted her to win by one vote less. No sense rewarding the Democrats for being greedy. I expected Trump to win. From the very moment that Trump descended the golden escalator and announced his candidacy, I thought he could win. As time went on, I increasingly thought that he would win. The main thing I, I was thinking at the time, I was feeling a bit down. I think it was in the wake of the um, well, of two things. One was the allegations against against Russell Brand, uh, yeah, which had emerged, and then yeah. also the reaction to the uh, medical event uh, that Matt Crispin has. He's had. He's in the hospital now. I don't know what his condition is. Um, I don't know if he's conscious or unconscious. I don't know anything oh, wow. really. Wow. Um, but uh, he had a, a some sort of medical event. It seems like it's likely to have been a stroke. He oh. had been on a stream complaining about a pulsing in his temple the day before. Um, he said, oh, I'm just a hypochondriac. And then the next day apparently had some sort of major medical event. And And people online, not everyone, of course, but uh, what I realized was I couldn't tell the difference between right-wing uh, people who hated uh, Matt Crispin and radical leftists who hated him, or, you know, supposed people who self-identify as radical leftists. And it made me realize that in both cases, what we had was an authoritarian left yeah. who were very interested in enforcing, I don't know, uh, a social morality or some whatever the uh, who are most interested i think in in punishing people yeah um and that with that kind of left we didn't have much of an opportunity to develop a, an actual politics right especially if you think of politics the way you define it in the death of the millennial left which is not just politics over policies and how to manage the crisis which is capitalism but the politics of the workers struggling for the realization of bourgeois right or socialism. Socialism, yeah. So, or even, you know, we could even say that in the realm of capitalist politics, like, is this a struggle over, I mean, it is, it ends up being, but is it self-consciously, deliberately a struggle over the direction of society? Or is it, again, just managing the crisis and is it just kind of opportunistic power struggles among cliques? you know, mm -hmm. among rackets, you know, both within states and between states and, you know, et cetera. So I wanted to say something about this because, you know, so you gave me a heads up about the topic. Mm -hmm. So I would distinguish between the left and Marxism, actually, in one way. But in another way, of course, I do identify Marxism with the left. So let me explain that. So mm -hmm. I do think of the left as an intellectual phenomenon, as an ideological phenomenon. Mm -hmm but therefore as an intellectual phenomenon and as a phenomenon of consciousness. And so 
there's a lot kind of packed into that. Like, so consciousness could be practice as well as theory. It doesn't have to be like a theoretical position or a theoretical methodology. It can be a practice. And of course, you know, Platypus infamously, and I did coin this expression myself personally, the left is dead, long live the left. Mm -hmm. Meaning that I don't know that I'm the left, right? In other words, I do know that I'm a Marxist, but I don't know that that necessarily means that I'm the left, right? So one of the phenomena that we're dealing with in the world, and this will be in the second volume in my Marxist in politics, I'm going to include the debate that I had, at least my side of the debate with uh, Benedict Cryptofash, a kind of mm -hmm. anti-left Marxist or kind of a, you know, post-left Marxist, but an anti-left Marxist is this idea that like Marxism is not the left is definitely not the left because there's a kind of colloquial sense of the left, meaning the left wing of capital, the left wing of capitalism and progressive liberal capitalism, progressive liberalism, mm -hmm. the Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. The normal way that we talk about these things. Now, of course, when I say the left is dead, I mean a socialist left. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, you know, and I do draw on like this text that, I myself am responsible for raising from for raising from obscurity Lechek Kalikowski's The Concept of the Left. Nobody mm -hmm. was talking about this at all. I had not been aware of it. I accidentally discovered it in the New mm -hmm. Left Reader. And uh, we put it on the Platypus syllabus in the beginning of the Platypus reading group, uh, you know, early on in 2006. And then people picked up on it, like Bhaskar Sankara and others. Um, Daniel Tutt has become a fan of it as of late as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I do go with uh, Kolakowski's definition of the left. Um, where he gets that from is from Marxism, from the history of Marxism, from the idea that there was a left wing of Marxism, that Marxism in its crisis in the 20th century divided between a left and a right. And the right in that context meant Stalinism. Mm hmm Right. And so another way of thinking about it is, you know, if we think about Stalinism as the liquidation of Marxism, but more importantly, the liquid, you know, because that's like theoretical, practically the liquidation of a proletarian socialist politics, the liquidation of a socialist politics and a kind of merging into progressive liberalism. Mm -hmm. Right. That progressive liberalism is, of course, a form of conservatism, meaning it's the right. As far as the socialist movement is concerned, not just Marxism, but as far as the socialist movement, like anarchists are concerned, progressive liberalism is, is you know, the right. It's the, it's the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. So again, the idea of that Marxism itself could have accommodated itself to the status quo could have succumbed to what Kolakowski calls the inertia of the status quo, opportunistically, mm -hmm. right? Adapted to the status quo. The Soviet Union becoming what Hillel Tikhtin called a status quo power, mm -hmm. right? So the way people think about it nowadays, they think, oh, well, no, the Soviet Union and today communist China and, you know, maybe communist Cuba, this is the left. And then progressive liberalism is some kind of compromise with leftism, right? Some kind of compromise. So liberals are bad because they compromise between socialism and the right. And progressive yeah. liberalism is some kind of mid mid point between socialism and the capitalist right. Yeah, and, and usually uh, they, people people think of the differences uh, as like the difference between a totally state-run economy. And as some sort of mixed economy with 
some private right social democracy market socialism white like a welfare state version of capitalism as being like a midpoint between what they would consider to be the right which would be like free market capitalism like total individualism like i don't know ayn rand type stuff yeah right right and they're like you know and then like communist china uh maybe not today but maybe during the cultural revolution Mm -hmm. right before the market reforms and the soviet union in the era of stalin himself right like from the first five-year plan through the death of stalin right um as opposed to khrushchev who kind of softens things up and right and in eastern europe you have like kind of goulash communism you have like uh you know some like liberalization and market reforms that go on right as a kind of um what the what they called revisionism what the so there's this anti-revisionist marxism that's marxist leninism it's orthodox stalinism it's maoism Mm anti-revisionism go to marxist.org there's the anti-revisionist library online or something which is maoism Mm-hmm. And so they use that language, and this is contemporaneous with Kolakowski writing his essay in the late 1950s, um, from the old revisionist dispute in the pre-World War I Second International. Right, but they right. don't, they don't, when they talk about anti-revisionism now, they fail to see the degree to which they actually side with the revisionists. Right, that but that's the thing, that that's the mindfuck right here, right? So that's right. the Stalinist like that's the problem right there is that exactly and so the idea is you know because they'll trot out things like lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder mm-hmm. to say oh well you can do this and that like you can you know be a candidate in the democratic party or you can support the democratic party you know the communist party usa famously infamously endorsed hillary instead of bernie mm-hmm. in the recent cycles um, not at all surprising. It's know. not at all surprising in a way. I mean, it, it's not that they exactly thought that Bernie was ultra leftist, right? But they did think, you know, that it's most important for the Democrats to win. Right. It was just the, the Hillary. They're like, we need to make sure that the Democrats have the strongest candidate and will defeat Trump. And uh, Bernie Sanders has a lot of liabilities. And besides, he's not. And then, you know, the, talking out of both sides of their mouth, mm-hmm. he's also not actually a socialist. He's just a... Anyway. Well, right, you know. You That's know, right. So. Oh, sure, of course, right? So they do all this. And this is really the history of the 20th century that we're dealing with. And it starts right. in the 1920s. So it's a good 100 years ago now that you get this weird sophistry about, like, reading the tea leaves and figuring out what element of capitalist politics is more left versus more right. And you know this is just a this is just a trap, if you will. It's not even a trap. It's a it's a swamp, as to use Lenin's language. It just you know you, you just get lost here, and we've been lost for a long time. That's really the point. So you know I'm infamously you know a Trotskyist, a you know, former Spartacist, and a Frankfurt School guy, and a Dorno scholar, and so it's kind of like oh you know. Why are why are why does Trotsky and the Frankfurt School why do they make um, people uncomfortable? Because they kind of put their finger on this wound, which is what happened to Marxism in the 1920s and 30s, 
right? So what's the problem with Stalinism? What's the issue really? And it's about giving up the horizon of socialist politics or what Kolakowski called utopia. Now, he didn't mean utopian socialism the way Marx and Engels criticized utopian socialism. He just said the possibility of what isn't the case. In other words, the possibility of something beyond the status quo in the present, right? So in other words, can you, you know, can you prove that possibility? No, you can't. And yet that sense of possibility must come from somewhere. So it's a very kind of Hegelian idea. You know, it's a very Marx-oriented idea, which is where does this idea of communism and socialism come from? Well, it must be a, an actual potentiality within capitalism. That's where the idea comes from. And we might misrecognize it in various ways. But nonetheless, we have an inkling of something. Right. And, and I want to point out about Marx's critique of the utopian socialists that he did not critique them for being utopian. utopian. Right. Right. He he critiqued them for failing to understand the categories of capitalism deeply enough to see where they failed in being utopian. It was it, it was a right. where they was felt short. Right. And he 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 was a, a critic of socialists. So he critiqued what he thought was probably one of the better. Yes. Uh, uh, he's actually sympathetic. He's actually very sympathetic to the utopian socialists, more sympathetic to them in many respects than to Proudhon. Right. Who he thinks is like a Philistine by comparison. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I mean, there is a difference between like the 1820s and 30s, the era of utopian socialism, and the 1840s, where socialism becomes a little bit more hard bitten. You know, it's in the crisis of the global oppression of the 1840s, the hungry 40s. And he remarks on this. And, you know, so he, he wants to say, you know, Marx, you know, that we shouldn't like adapt in this way, come down in this way. And also that Proudhon kind of justified it, his perspective with Hegelianism, actually. And that, uh, you know, I have in the back of my mind, because, you know, postmodernism is still a kind of a thing out there in the world, especially in my academic world, the discontent with Hegel in the 20th century. Why, why was there a kind of Althusserian, like anti-Hegelian Marxism? Mm -hmm. It's because they detected something in Stalinism where it seemed like, okay, Marxism could become a rationalization of the status quo by saying that the way things are is an expression of historical necessity. Mm. And that that seemed like a kind of Hegelianism in the sense of the rationality of the actual, right? Yeah. You have to sort of see the rationality of the actual. And so what ends up happening in the 20th century, and this is again, goes to the concept of the left and the right, is a kind of recapitulation of the division in Hegelianism between the left Hegelians and the right Hegelians. I want to um, bring up Hegel again. Maybe we can talk about it at length in the Parrot Room because we're reading uh -huh. The Science of Logic uh -huh. with the patrons right now. And okay. um, and it, right out of the gate, um, it, there's kind of a dispute. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I want to say I, I love Slovak Zizek. I like him too, you know, uh, but I got the Zizekian in there who is like not reading the text. <laughs> but, oh yeah. You know, you know, but right. jumping ahead, he's reading the text. He's, he's reading the text, but he's like, right. He's, he's interpreting it too quickly. And, uh -huh. um, and we can talk about that, at least in my opinion. Right. Uh, and we can talk about that issue in the, in the parrot room. But I, cause I do think it is important to 
uh, see how Hegel was a philosopher of freedom. Uh-huh. Um, Absolutely. Know, and, and that Hegel and, himself is not a right Hegelian. Right. No, he's not. Right. So that's that's right. the tricky part. Although he's also not a Marxist. He's not Marx. No. And he's also not like a young Hegelian. I mean, the way that I like to parse this out. So it's not really left and right Hegelians. It's more young Hegelians and old Hegelians. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the only left Hegelians are Marx and Engels themselves. Right. So in other words, what makes them different from the other young Hegelians? And also their criticism of the young Hegelians is not just methodological or philosophical, but really political, meaning mm -hmm. there's a kind of spurious radicalism to the young Hegelians that Marx and Engels are very keen to point out. Right? right. That they think of themselves as more radical than they actually are and that they're actually conceding to German realities in a way that they're not aware of. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that sense, you know, they are adapting they are right wing in their own way and especially like in their materialism right because they are like socialists and communists the young hegelians and they are kind of trying to materialize hegel in the way that again a kind of vulgar marxism thinks that marx is just materializing hegel and it's like no the young hegelians did that and marx criticized them for it mm -hmm. right so to yeah. bring it back to the kolakowski the issue is the left as an idea Right, the idealist dimension of Marxism, which is this, again, goes back to Kant, goes back to Hegel, goes back to German idealism, goes back to the sense that actually the idea of something that doesn't exist is still rooted in historical reality. It's still an expression of a historical potential that you can't point to empirically, but is nonetheless real. Mm -hmm. Right, and that, again... It's kind of like, so, you know, in terms of today, right, the fact that socialism is being redefined as progressive liberal capitalism and, you know, and people might have their choice of flavors of that, like, in other words, the Chinese model or, you know, what have you, the Western European, the Nordic country model or what have you, um, you know, it doesn't change the fact that that's what it is. And, you know, and that's where you get into like state capitalism and all this stuff. And people turn it into like empirical descriptive matters of, well, does it fit these criteria of, you know, analysis? And it's like, well, no, the point is politics and the point is historical possibility. And so the problem with, with collapsing the distinction between a kind of progressive liberal capitalism and socialism is that you are abandoning that horizon of socialism that task that appears to be utopian right so in other words if you if you if you really press people on it mm. what they object to is the utopianism what they reject is the idealism and it's like well but to be a revolutionary is idealistic both in the colloquial yeah. sense and also in the philosophical you know german idealist sense of you're pursuing something that's only a potential and a possibility. You're not acting on the basis of what exists. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they lose that and they're just like, well, no, we want to be, you know, materially grounded and we want to convince people that it's really possible. And so we have to like point to empirical phenomena now that show the possibility of socialism. And it's like, well, 
what we really have, because, you know, Marx and Engels were good Hegelians. They don't have blueprints of the future. What that means is, is that they're aware of the fact that the struggle for socialism might be misrecognizing itself now. In other words, that basically the only thing that they thought was tangibly possible that they could really point to and not even point to as like an empirical fact, but like as the next step in the chain, the next link in the chain to use the kind of Lukács expression mm -hmm. is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Meaning that's the thing that, you know, is in a sense unproven and yet more practically like immediate in its task. And, and they could point to it because it was, um, it hadn't been established, but there was a struggle for political power from the working class that was right. going on. That's right. At the time. That's right. So they could point to that. But what you could also point to now, now that that's not around, is you could point to contradictions in society. You could uh -huh. say, look, we we just had a moment where uh, we had m too much milk. So mm -hmm. we dumped a bunch of it down the drain in order to bring the prices of milk back up. So doesn't that show that there's a potential for the milk to be abundantly available or you know we have cars we have all these cars and the, uh, many of them are just didn't sitting in warehouses mm -hmm. you know so that's distribution of course right so you know right that. so it's like yeah. kind of like we could um we could distribute things better than we do now that's always possible and then of course right. the right-wing economists are there to say oh but if you do that it will collapse the economy and of course they're right, right about that no 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 it's important right. to say you know <laughs> it's, you can't just say oh well a, a good manager would get over would overcome that problem but rather or find new markets were, or find yeah, a the, new way for the state to correct the market right, right. no but these things were rational uh -huh. the way the warehouses full of cars is better in this system than getting them all out there Mm -hmm. Right. That that's that actually is the right choice, given our conditions of possibility right now. But right. And given what the, the actual like necessity is. Right. right? So the necessity is not um, the use values of people. No. The necessity is capital accumulation. You know, the possibility of a future society, basically, in capitalist terms. Um, and, you know, again, that we don't like, you know, collapse this very fragile exchange system, international mm -hmm. exchange system that we have that keeps things going and ultimately does provide the use values. Right. right? And so it's, it's, you know, it's super tricky because, again, you know, we're immediately talking at a level of abstraction that, right. you know, people lose patience with. And so, I mean, look, in our time, the time of the millennial left, right? So basically, mm -hmm. I came out of retirement with the millennial left. You got turned on to Marxism in the moment of the millennial left around the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what did we see? You know, we saw billionaires, you know, and we saw the 1% and the 99%. And we saw fabulous profits being made by corporations while the rest of the population went through a structural adjustment in their standard of living. And that's still ongoing, still mm -hmm. ongoing today, right? So the UAW strike is about that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, you know, it's not about the profitability of these corporations. It's about losing pace with the standard of living for the workers, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, it looks like, oh, the problem is the rich people. The problem is economic inequality, right? It looks like mm -hmm. that's the problem. And it's like, hold on, children. 
-hmm. that's not the problem right and then right. like, I mean, in, in the case of the like did you see or or i i i talked about the uaw strike on monday yeah and what, one of the things i i yeah one of the things i pointed out was while it's true that this year profits are way up and if you just look at this year in a snapshot certainly possible that in this year they could well afford to pay the workers you know uh, a, a lot more and they should demand that but long term uh, but the long term trend is a decline um, yes. and has been for 50 years and uh you we there's no reason to think that this current so you're ready for this is, Doug? Yeah. you know cuz it is built into the UAW's own perspective by the way and they've been doing this for a long time through the whole yeah. neoliberal era which mm -hmm. is that you get a 40% pay raise but you agree to slash the workforce well, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, yeah. it's kind of like, all right. Of course, they can afford to pay much fewer. But they have. They, there salary. was. It, it's not going to happen. This isn't going to happen. But one of their demands was a job bank, where new. The idea was that the workers who were let go from certain parts of the uh, company's, you know, production would be reserved, retrained, and then put to work in another part of the company. And the whole idea is that we're transitioning to electric cars. <clears throat> we're going to, so that, uh, you know. They want these, some control over the process, right? Right. Well, I mean, because even, even, of labor, of the even if they, the reserve army, even if we go green in, in auto manufacturing, yeah. <clears throat> that will entail fewer work. By the way, that's okay. In other words, if the unions want some control over, like managing the reserve army of labor because if, if i understand things correctly part of the mm -hmm. phenomenon with manufacturing and i guess sarah bamari talks about this mm -hmm. right casualization of labor doesn't just mean the gig economy it also right. means like variable hours in other words you're an employee and you're on call as needed yeah that happens a lot that's been happening a lot for a long time and that's in the manufacturing sector as well and it's in the unionized sector as well that that is a, i didn't know that union jobs would allow that shit to go on you know of course, I thought because that, it's yeah. the price they have to pay to keep the jobs at all yeah. right so the question there is and this is where you know your more sophisticated social democrats will come in and you know or democratic socialists whatever dsiers and you know again it's co-management in other words that the union has an ability to assert a, a role in the decisions that are made on such things and you know one could say well that's that's good right in other words like the point of class struggle just at a basic level at a liberal level not in a socialistic way whatsoever is to enhance the social and potentially political power of the working class like collective bargaining right so what you want to do is put the workers in a position of stronger collective bargaining in other words you do want the unions to play more of a role over conditions of hiring and firing and over management decisions yeah right? but there are such severe limits to that i i worked a job where the manager would interview people to he, when he was hiring he would interview people he'd bring them in have them work with us for a, a day then at, when that person left he would ask us our opinion and take we get the vote on who got hired and who well, that's a really lame version of it. It gets right. it's much more intense than that. In other words, it's yeah. much more developed than that. And you know, if you but look the point at the, the point was not just that, but it was also like um, that we that was kind of shitty. But the, overall, 
you're only going to be presented choices that the management want you to be presented with because the, and the, and the manager is only going to look at choices that are realistic within the, the, what, what is in that moment, there's never going to be a, a path towards more empowerment for the workers really that way. This is a kind of a, a show of participation. It's real. Participation. Oh, well, certainly that is what yeah. I'm thinking though, is like your social democratic parties mm -hmm. who are able to play a role, both at the level of the corporate firms and over the labor market, but also over capitalist state policy, right? As like political parties in a parliamentary democratic representational system. And might even have, I, I always like to point out that there are still workers councils in Germany today that descend from the 1918 revolution. And they are like a state kind of body. And, you know, they, they co-manage capitalism, not just at the level of the corporate firm, or collective bargaining, but the level of state policy. And again, conditions for the labor market. Um, and so again, the, the problem that Marxism puts on the table, and again, why it seems to be immediately off in the stratosphere and you know, utopian and idealistic and abstract and purism and all this stuff, is that that's not where the problem is. In other words, the problem is in the long-term prognosis of society. Meaning right. there's a lot of room for this kind of stuff in capitalism. There actually is. I mean, again, we're conditioned by the neoliberal era. You know, with the Tina, there is no alternative. The idea that this is just what has to be done. And so we have to tear all these things down that have been built up in the preceding historical era because they're all impediments to, you know, exigent necessities right now. And, you know, this is like market reforms or shock treatment you know, I mean, obviously shock treatment didn't really happen in the metropolitan countries, but some version of it did. Mm -hmm. You know, we associate that more with the developing world. Um, but you could say, you know, the United States, Britain, even Western Europe was subject to some kind of a shock treatment in the neoliberal era um, to get the economy, you know, going again. So that's where the action is. And what's interesting is that in terms of like ancient history now, the history of Marxism, like again, what I was saying about the left and the right of Marxism, is that under very dire conditions, Marxists were thrust into a position where they had to say, are we going to risk revolution? This is a risk, it's a gamble. Or are we going to be responsible political actors and save society from utter collapse? Because that's what the SPD did in Germany. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why they put down Rosa Luxemburg and her party, not because they didn't want socialism, but because and not even because they had given up on the idea of it or even the utopian possibility of it. It's that they were like, under these conditions right now, we can't afford this. Right. Society's mm -hmm. falling apart right now. And, you know, the allies are ready to invade and the crazy right wingers are ready to take over and there can be an utter collapse of the economy. Right. Like all these like immediate pressing dangers. It's like, right. yeah, we're Marxists. Yeah, we're socialists. But right now we have to do this. Right. Right. And, you know, so we have to understand the rationality of that. Right. So that even when the largest, proportionally speaking, mass socialist party took power, it was under conditions where they felt that they couldn't pursue socialism or they could only pursue socialism by way of preserving society as much as they possibly could, 
which is of course understandable and even that's a good you know that's a that's a, a well-reasoned argument meaning i think that people have this like picture of like i don't know war communism and the russian revolution and early soviet union where they're they they like that radicalism that was forced upon the bolsheviks mm -hmm. they don't know exactly what to make of the new economic policy of that era and then of mm -hmm. course they ultimately do think that it was somehow necessary to do the five-year plan and the crash industrialization and forced collectivization of agriculture and all that stuff right and you know it's kind of like well wait a second you know we are as socialists interested in transforming the realm of necessity and not just doing what is necessary and calling that historical materialism and therefore justified by Marxism, right? Mm -hmm. I think people have a very hard time thinking about that. Thinking about like from, I guess, from like a Frankfurt School perspective, everything that happened, World War I, the SPD taking power in the Weimar era, the Soviet Union and its history in the 20s and 30s, in a in a fundamental way all of that was unnecessary mm -hmm. like actual concrete empirical living breathing human history was unnecessary mm -hmm. that doesn't jive well with people in their common sense they really don't like that yeah right and so to stand for the possibility of something you know, it's called counterfactual history, whatever it's called. It's, you know, mm -hmm. there are all these sort of trash categories that people can dismiss it with. But fundamentally, right, to say, okay, it, it became a cascading series of accommodations. Right. So it would appear to be exigent, emergency, dire, unavoidable historical necessities. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, Marxism, there is a way that Marxism can be taken to justify that, again, as historical materialist analysis. Mm -hmm. And right. And so and, and then, you know, the only alternative to that is idealistic, is utopian. And that's what Kolakowski was saying about Stalinism. He's like, well, look, you know, Stalinism became the right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's hard for people to understand now because they're just like, oh, wait, radical egalitarianism and just distribution and re-educating or, if necessary, killing off the utter reactionary fascists. How can that be right wing? Right. Well, because it's ultimately the verdict in 2023 is that it all was part of the preservation of capitalism at a world historical level. It all was part of that story. Even though the fascist project was also to preserve capitalism. I mean, in some ways, the fascists were more dishonest than the Stalinists, right? Because yeah. they were whacked out on, like, I don't know, what, returning Germany to pre-Aryan right. tribal something. You know, they wanted to reestablish some ecological balance with the land and all this stuff. And you know, and mm. just set up like mechanical armaments on the frontiers <laughs> to keep all the, the bad, you know, liberal democratic capitalists out, mm. um, you know, like, and uh, so, you know, in, in some ways, of course, the Stalinists had the advantage of having a veneer of rationality to what they were doing. Whereas mm. the fascists could say, fuck rationality, this is like life, 
you know, this is like the life of the German people, you know, this is like some kind of, you know, uh, don't try to rationalize it because that's how the bourgeoisie hoodwinks us or something. Why is it that, um, well, I guess uh, there's a couple of ways for me to ask this question. I'm going to try the, the first impulse, which I think might be the wrong way, but why is it so difficult to overcome the decisions that were made by those who came before you? Uh, struggle you know, continues, Doug. <laughs> the struggle continues. Yeah. Like, what are you, why, against the struggle? <laughs> no. But I mean, <laughs> I, I know, like, look, I used to be moved by that slogan, which came out of 68, right? I mean, that was one place where it came out of it. it was, yeah. Um, and, uh, hmm? you know, it was like, we're not totally defeated. We could go back to this moment the where people the United workers... will never be defeated. I used to right. go to demos mm -hmm. and I used to sing it with everybody else, except I did my own substitution that nobody heard. Yeah. The people United will always be defeated. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's what we've seen. Like in other words, if you really want to know what the historical verdict on that is, the people United will always be defeated. <laughs> right. But we, yeah, oh God. Um, well, it depends on how they're united. And and also, it can't, it's not the people. It's the, Yeah, the, the people and the united. <laughs> exactly. How are the people united? Fuck. Yeah. Right? Um, but, yeah, so why is it that, I mean, is but, okay, when you say, well, the struggle continues, Doug, don't you want the struggle to continue? Are you against the struggle? Are you against the movement? Well, that makes it sound like it's social pressure that's that's making it no i mean to... obviously i've been targeted by this as well right right and so i'm speaking from experience which is that you know and it goes back to trotsky right he's the you know traitor he's the fascist wrecker he's he must be even if he doesn't himself know it he's working for the gestapo and the mikado and whatever right and, you know, he's, a, you know, the so social fascist, Trotskyist wreckers, right, are all the problems in the Soviet Union are because people are, I don't know, lackadaisical and not enthusiastic enough about the five-year mm. plans. And so they must be killed, right? Because unbeknownst to themselves, they're doing this. And, of course, the Frankfurt School in, you know, absenting themselves from the struggle, right, mm. and becoming pessimistic about the working class, you know, they became traitors, right, and Gabriel Rockhill and others are out there to say, you're a traitor. Chris Catron, mm. you're a Trotskyist Frankfurt School, you're in the long line of traitors. And, you know, my attitude is just very simple, and it goes to the leftist end. Mm -hmm. The struggle doesn't continue. It doesn't, mm -hmm. right? Not the struggle I'm interested in. That struggle ended a long time ago. And yes, people are still struggling, but that's not the point because actually capitalism is based on that. Capitalism mm -hmm. is based on constant revolutionizing of production. And how do people think that happens? Do they think that it's like in Steve Jobs's or Bill Gates's like garage? That's mm -hmm. where the revolution of capital. No, the revolution of capitalism happens on the street. The working class does the revolution of capitalism. That's at least what Marx thought. He thought the Industrial Revolution was not like a conspiracy of the capitalists against the workers to use the machines against the workers. The workers' own class struggle created the conditions under which it became mm -hmm. possible and necessary to choose to invest in machines rather than hire workers. 
So I, I wanted to ask that same question I asked before, but in, in a in a different way that might be clear, more clarifying, maybe not. But um, if we suppose that the choices made in the early 20th century, say in Germany with the STB, SPD, um, um, and, and that the choice to put down Rosa Luxemburg, stop the revolution, make an accommodation to um, capital uh, was done out of a sense of necessity and that it, uh, you know, was the choice that the people made that and th that enough workers supported that there was a power behind it mm -hmm. to hold and it politically, they politically won, even though they they lost the socialism in the process. They, they, if, if they have uh, majority working class support. Yeah. They had the might, to to enact their will um and the what, too not just the and, might but the right inertia. so so they that's what happened then and the conditions for revolution were much better in other words the yeah. workers were more organized the there was a socialist left um that you know enough people who were part of the socialist left that th this could be discussed openly that the, the amount and of they had that, a pretty sophisticated marxism in other words we can right. criticize it but we have to acknowledge that perhaps in their moment, their Marxism was far more sophisticated than anything that we have now. Well, I, I would definitely agree with that, even though I have critiques of from okay, but they my were politically little... engaged. In other words, there were things motivating their questions that gave it like a traction on reality and a, a kind of a substance. Right. That our Marxism has to be necessarily more abstract. So given that is the case how can we uh justify the risk of attempting to uh do better under worse conditions and including not being as adequately trained or uh, not having the full understanding that they had in the past today like what what makes a marxist today think it's worthwhile to try to pick up the struggle to continue it and rather than just continue the struggle that is capitalism itself well, how, how and this goes right. to like can we win is it uh, even, or, you know can we win is it even can we conceive of winning is it is you know slavoj Ižek, so it's, you know his thing is to fail but fail better yeah right struggle and fail but fail better so he's got like that thing and so I, that immediately came to mind so winning okay so you know Charlie Sheen, we're winning, right? Okay. <laughs> right? So I got tiger's Gen blood. I'm a winner. I win. Yeah, very Gen <laughs> X, very, very lame middle-aged man kind of sentiment. You know? um, but so, okay, so I mentioned earlier that I'm not sure, like I'm pretty sure that I'm the last Marxist or something approximate to that. But we I'm are. You said at the beginning, and yes. we are. <laughs> well, you right. mean I mean, with my I'm still with her shirt. Uh, 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 with Rosa, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but okay, so but I'm not sure that that's necessarily the left in the sense that I mean, like not in the sense of the Democrats and progressive liberal capitalism, but in the sense of a real potential movement of history, a real historical possibility, right? So mm -hmm. I, I've I've said this in you know in our conversations previously. I'm actually open to post-Marxism. I am. I just think that it would have to be, you know, authentic, legit, like not spurious post-Marxism. 
in other words, actually goes beyond Marxism rather than skirting Marxism or avoiding it. And that's what I've seen in the last hundred years. All attempts at post-Marxism have actually been an avoidance of it. And so, again, I'm not sure that Marxism is adequate today to express the possibility beyond our historical moments in capitalism or in whatever you want to call it. Right. So, you know, I even like, you know, like tech, techno, like feudalism or whatever, you know, I'm like, okay, I roll my eyes at this stuff, but I'm also like, well, they, they could of course be right about that. You know, that I it's mean, no longer capitalism. I mean, you know, it's plausible. In other words, I have to treat it at the level of, I can't take my own Marxism for granted. Right. It's truth. Right. I can't take that for granted. Um, and so, you know, for me, again, the question is, I think that we haven't surpassed the horizon of historical Marxism. I think that historical Marxism, like, did grasp a horizon of possibility that we have not surpassed, right? And mm -hmm. so I do think that what we've had is not really post-Marxism or, you know, we haven't transcended Marxism, but we've fallen below it. And not only in the Marxist realm itself, like the kind of vulgar Marxism or the kind of self-liquidation of Marxism, whatever you want to call it, but but also attempts to get beyond Marxism has, have also fallen below it. And yeah. usually, like, they haven't even gotten beyond the vulgar Marxism that they that they took to be Marxism that they wanted mm -hmm. to overthrow or surpass. Right? right, so that's the thing. And so, okay, so you went to contradiction earlier, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, that we can at least grasp contradiction. Well, maybe, but that's, that's a, that's a controversial point too, because what do we mean by contradiction and do contradictions point beyond themselves is a dialectical approach to contradiction warranted justified, right? It's, it's hard to just say, oh, well, if you find contradiction, then you are finding a historical possibility beyond the present. Of course, that's a very Hegelian thing. And who's a Hegelian, right? And so, you know, what's the possibility of being Hegelian um, in the present moment? Because again, I, what I have in mind, and again, this is the Frankfurt School part, but it's also maybe the esoteric Marxist part, is that movement through dialectical contradiction describes the movement of capitalism itself, Right. And so there is a kind of a goal beyond the dialectic, we might say. There is a goal beyond um, this kind of um, totality of contradiction. You know, in other words, that this is what's to be overcome. And so, again, what we're what we're grasping there is not necessarily freedom, but we're grasping unfreedom when we're looking at contradiction. Right. And that's why we can't, you know, we we're dealing with much in a sense grosser or a more obtuse phenomena today i mean that's why it's natural for us to reach to give me an example of the kind of phenomenon that we're dealing with today that we might be able to get a grip on dialectically but that wouldn't necessarily point us beyond freedom. capitalism right. right and wouldn't necessarily be the grasping of freedom but more a grasping of unfreedom well what you mentioned about like distribution problems right right like things that seem amenable to policy reform but but for the fact that there isn't like an actual political constituency to do it right right so like you know like you know i know that this always annoys you when i point to thomas piketty 
Mm-hmm. And like, maybe this is a more adequate description of what's going on than what Marxism described historically. And you're like, oh, no, I don't want to grant that. And it's like, well, no, the problem with Piketty is not at that level. It's more at the level of everybody could read Thomas Piketty, all the capitalists, like the Davos people could, or the Bilderberg people could read Thomas Piketty and they could all say, yeah, this is true. But there's no way to act on it. <laughs> Right. So that's like that's the real problem with it, um, mm. you know, because. Well, but well, why isn't there a way to act? I mean, just to be clear, what he was suggesting was that we that you this is very mainstream, you know, progressive mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. We in, in, institute massive taxation on the wealthiest people. Um, and I'm not sure if he had anything built in about job guarantees. But uh, but you know also because I don't through think that necessarily text, right, mm-hmm. right? But but um, it, the the idea was through that massive taxation you could then supplement wages and uh, undo the inequality that's emerged through neoliberal policies, which would he said create more stable conditions and overcome uh, the uh, crisis that like the, the kind of financial crisis. crash right yeah because he had this uh if i'm remembering correctly he had this sort of a theory of capitalism that the reason it went into crisis was because of underconsumption. it be the, the 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 wages weren't distributed well enough so that you could create adequate demand for the products that were being produced therefore production became less profitable you got financialization blah 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 yeah so, over financialization right so, so this- through redistribution of of the wealth as money in a kind of uh, wage from the state, you could overcome both uh, the economic crisis and the inequality in society. That's right. That's so, what he was I mean, saying. In some, ways, in some ways, a lot of the discontent with the financial crisis amounted to, and you see this, you know, it's not the same, but a parallel phenomenon with MMT, with modern monetary theory, mm-hmm. is the attempt to reestablish the true value of money. Mm. Right. And so it is a variety of monetarism. And by the way, so I was I was invited to write a review of the latest Milton Friedman biography by mm-hmm. Jennifer Burns for Compact magazine. And so I'm, I'm embarking okay. upon that task now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what's missing from that book is the phrase we're all Keynesians now that, that Milton Friedman uttered in the late mm-hmm. 60s, I think. And um, so that's missing because, of course, the whole setup is that you're either a Keynesian or you're a Friedmanite. Rather than seeing that actually, you know, monetarism isn't this other thing, that Keynesianism is a variety of monetarism. And, of course, Mm -hmm. that was MMT. Right. The problem is money supply and, you know, regulating that adequately. And the problem with financialization or credit bubbles, right? is that money has lost its value. So interestingly, even though everyone is denying the labor theory of value, they're also acknowledging it at some level. Right. Yeah. But in fact, the, you know, right. I could go into why I don't believe it's even the case that money loses its value in these moments of crisis. Exactly. It's an adequate reflection of the ability of, of work to produce value in a profitable way. It's not, is how I would think of it. It's, so well, it's, it's a not capital like, crisis. It's a capital crisis. It's not right, a money right. crisis. It's a capital crisis. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it ultimately comes down to the way that efficient labor 
contradicts itself. You know, oh, yeah. The, right? Well, that's the long historical view, though, right? So, like, but what I'm saying is that in the moment now, as politics is is configured, right? Like Syriza. You know? Yeah, this is what I was going to ask you. It's like right. the fact that I think it would fail, this Thomas Piketty approach, I have a Marxist critique of it, doesn't mean that it can't be taken up and, and tried out, right? Right. Because I would have said the neoliberal approach would fail, and I would have been right in wrong. the long term. Right, but you would right? have been wrong for a good 50 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, which <laughs> right. matters a lot in the realm of politics. Right. So my attitude, of course, is don't count any of this shit out. Right. Right. And so, again, what does it mean to say that it will fail? You know, and again, we can't be like, oh, well, well one thing it means is that the discontent in society will not be overcome, not even in the short term. It might be adequately overcome for people who institute the policies to maintain power, but it won't be overcome. And, and all, that's, that's the, all that matters, by the way. Yeah, right. That's all that matters. Right. So I was watching an interview with um, this guy, Douglas McGregor, who's a retired colonel, who was a hero mm -hmm. in the Gulf War from our days gone by. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And is like a tank warfare specialist or something. So he's become a commentator. He was being interviewed by Tucker Carlson. So he's a commentator on like, you know, the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that he ventured into the realm of social policy and politics. And he was like, you know, uh, Americans are being asked to sacrifice this and that while their standard of living is going down and X, Y, and Z. And he says, you know, the United States is headed to uh, come to Jesus moment. And who knows what that's going to be, right? But he saw the Ukraine war as a symptom of that, right? So even like a total just military technocratic, like military technique, tactical kind of guy. Right. He's just like, look, the U.S. policy can't win in Ukraine against Russia and these weapons that we're using and the Ukrainians. And, you know, he's just saying militarily, this can't work. But then it was like, and the United States is going to hit a wall. Right. And this is a symptom of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the elites are whatever. Right. So he has some kind of potted, I'm sure, vision of politics and whatever. And but it seemed very far afield from what they were talking about. And yet it went to that place. Namely, there's going to be a political, a major political crisis in the United States. Right. Right. And, you know, you can see in something as obscure as the Ukraine war policy and its folly. You can see already. Yeah, I know. I'm I am I am worried about it and not in a good way. Like I need to be worried about it in a good way, like a Marxist would be like a utopian rather than. The way I get worried about it, like, oh, no, it could be me next or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. No, so it's, you got you to think about it in terms of, you know, OK, so what would a come to Jesus moment in the United States mean? Well, I mean, it could mean a lot of chaos and violence and this kind of thing. But it would also wait, 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 before we go into that, I want to yeah. return to Piketty for just a second. When you say right. Piketty doesn't have the political, there's no way to enact it politically. You just mean that for whatever reason within the democratic party or the, or, or civil the society party. or the Republican party, there isn't a, a, a base for that transformation. And when, you know, when I talked to uh, Bhaskar Sankara, I keep going back to this. It was a very brief exchange uh -huh. after the Sorab uh, uh, Bhaskar moment where they, they were discussing how they both love different kinds of labor policies. Uh -huh. um, 
uh, I said, so is this what's happened to the so, in democratic socialism, to the so to the DSA uh, that we're handing it off to the Republicans? This, and he said, no, SORAP doesn't have a base. Right. And of course, the first thought I had was, well, turns out we we didn't either. Right. Right. But um, but but I guess I suppose. What's, uh, in a couple of different senses, I'm sure. So right. there's base in terms of an electorate, a voting base. Right. And mm -hmm. then there's a base in terms of a social base. Right. And that's where, you know, the DSA kind of, you know, does square the circle, if you will, because they ostensibly are for both. They're for both for building up an electoral base and building up a social base. Well, what, what, where would they point to show to to dump to demonstrate that they're building up a social base? Oh, labor militancy, right? So the UAW strike would be yeah, like, but that's not different from the voting base. That is the same. Well, it's not necessarily the same because again, if you strengthen the labor unions, then you have something to hold. You know what Sorab called countervailing power to hold the politicians accountable. Because obviously yeah, the politicians through, being dependent through threatening their voter base. But more than that, right? More than that. You have to be able to take extra parliamentary action too, right? You have to be able to change conditions on the ground also to push policy reforms. It's not enough to just say, we'll be more or less enthusiastic about voting for you. That's so not like, enough, actually. So the like when the the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm-hmm. That was the Democrats ex exerting power through their social base. I mean, it was it was a protest, meaning it was a protest against, um, you know, these abuses going on under Democratic administration, like at a municipal level at a state. No, I'm talking about in 2020. No, no, I know. And then because, you know, I always like to say it's because there was a prospect of the Democrats winning uh, presidential office. But with it being Biden and Kamala Harris, with it being the author of the crime bill in the 90s and with, a you know, a prosecutor. Right. That that was her thing before she was a senator. Her claim to fame was being a rather draconian prosecutor that they were like, you know, it was a, 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 a real cry of protest before accommodation, meaning it really was like a kind of despair of like, OK, this shit didn't go away under Obama certainly didn't go away under Trump. Is it ever going to go away? And, you know, we want to let the Democrats know that we're unhappy with the fact so, that. So know, having a social base means that the people who are acting in your interest have to know it. They do. I mean, I don't think that it was about threatening to withhold votes because it was all in blue areas that we're not going to elect Republicans if blacks didn't vote. That wasn't going to happen. Right in Illinois or Seattle or Portland. Well, like yeah, right. It, it right. Portland, it was um, right. Right, but what happened was those protests gave credence to the idea that Trump was an extraordinarily dangerous president. President. Uh, president. There we go. And that. Um, and that there was a need for a return to normal there was a need for us but also hand. a fear of returning to normal if it just meant what obama did 
right? That's I don't think so. Chris, I don't think so. I remember <laughs> the protesters and with uh, that organized people around Black Lives Matter, many of them saying now they were Democratic operatives. They're saying this demonstrates the power of the vote. This demonstrates why, you know, that, that we need to we, we're taking the power from the streets back to the voting booths where you know, uh, we, you know, and a lot of the people who were most active uh, in around BLM protests became Democratic Party operatives, sure, and certainly sure. most of them became Democratic Party voters. The expansion um, of, the, of the squad also in the 2022 election, and then the right. election. I mean, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that. I'm just saying like I don't see, like I don't, I'm not saying that the original riot after the murder of George Floyd was the social base, but the way it was taken up opportunistically and transformed, oh, sure. you know. But, but again, where are the reforms, right? So again, it's it's one of these things where, I mean, I like to point at rather the opposite, which is before the George Floyd protests, where was Black Lives Matter? It was non-existent, meaning mm -hmm. it went, it was gone under Trump and then came back only in 2020 and only fairly late in the election cycle. It was after COVID, right? It was when Biden and Harris were ascending to the nomination. And my point is that why was there no Black Lives Matter protests under Trump? Because, because they, they didn't, didn't have, think that he could be pressured by Right. They knew that. that they had no audience, right? And so what does it mean to pressure the Democrats? Right. I mean, it's just that's why it's not even a so I would say it's not a social base. It's not an electoral base. It's not a social base. It's something that, OK, our generation, we talk about this, mm -hmm. like growing up in the shadow of the 60s. And what mm -hmm. that means, because the change that happened, you could say it happened in the 80s and 90s, but really you have to look back at the 60s. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam anti-war protests did not stop the war. Uh, we love to, everyone loves to say that. But they just obviously did not. You know, meaning it only, you know, the National Guard shot down people under Nixon. You know, in other words, it wasn't up and up by any means. And anyway, Nixon wanted to get out of Vietnam. So that, and, and, and the black militancy of the black power turn of the Panthers, right, for example, or more general black power, Stokely Carmichael, accomplished absolutely nothing. So what did accomplish things? You know, I think that we just recently celebrated the anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington, mm -hmm. right? The March for Freedom and Jobs, right? The bad way of interpreting this is that the civil rights movement was just a big protest demo. It wasn't. It was a real movement. <laughs> like on the ground, it actually did change conditions in the South. Now, they, they didn't have success in the North, right, okay. famously. But in the South, they actually had a great deal of success. And it wasn't just Supreme Court decisions and law changes. It was actual conditions on the ground. They did change conditions on the ground. They made enforcement of segregation impossible on the ground, mm -hmm. right? And they didn't like force white people into submission or anything like that. What they did was they made the absurdity of segregation apparent because it had already outlived its time. It was right. already over, 
right? There, there was already wor an integrated working class. There was already an industrialized South coming out of World War II and mm -hmm. even earlier. And so it was a real movement <laughs> in a way that we have not seen. And in a way that the anti-war movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement was not real the way the civil rights movement was real. Right. And so instead it becomes, oh, well, the civil rights legislation and this and that and the assassination of Martin Luther King and the and the Black Panthers, it gets very muddled. And so I think that what we've inherited all the way down to the present, although there was a moment in the millennial left where they knew they needed something else, mm -hmm. is this idea that a social movement is basically a big protest demo. I used to joke that people thought that the Russian Revolution was a huge demonstration with guns. <laughs> that, that, that's what they mm -hmm. thought revolution was. Revolution is a lot of people on the street with guns. It's mm -hmm. like, that's not a fucking revolution. Do you know, like, what are we talking about? You know, so no well, more, an insurrection is a bunch of people showing up and breaking windows. Right. Right. I know. <laughs> I know. Right. Exactly. That's an insurrection. And and so I just feel like, OK, do people have no idea, really, because even short of like a revolution, like, you know, mm -hmm. even like a political revolution, like just a, overthrowing a regime or a government like the Arab Spring type stuff. Yeah. Even short of that. Right. There is this idea that like being a revolutionary is screaming very loudly or taking an extreme position, right? Or adopting the most. Okay, so let's talk about the Arab Spring in, in Egypt. Mm -hmm. What you saw was that uh, the, the squares filled up with protesters. They refused to go home. They fought with the police. They were beaten and injured and killed. And they kept coming and they kept coming. Why was that not just a, a huge protest that went for days and riots that went for days and days? Why? What made that into a political revolution that got got rid of Mubarak? What? Well, there wasn't. I would say, okay. So I'm like a very strict Marxist, right? So I've okay. got my strict criteria here. I got my checklist. Mm -hmm. It was a regime change, right? Okay, so what would so you, you just know, mentioned the kind of political revolution that just right. ends up with the regime change? Right. But, so um, that's what I'm saying Mubarak right. was. So, so what made that rid of not just a protest right. with guns? So because the military in Egypt decided that Mubarak was a liability, so they got rid of him. What made them decide that he was a li liability? Oh, because the protests and the demonstration and you know the the kind of social chaos had made things ungovernable. In a real way. Right. right. But I think that. So everyone running into the streets with guns, protesting for weeks at a time, nonstop, creating civil disruption can be revolutionary. Well, it can be. I would not call it revolutionary because, again, it didn't really like democratize the Egyptian state. OK, right? it but it was a kind of revolution. That, that political in the sense of regime change, that can happen through. Yeah, regime that. change. You can definitely overthrow a government. You can get rid of a president. Right. Through, so, what, uh, right. so to make it a socialist revolution, what else do you need besides civil unrest and, and make oh, things Oh, you need to actually be able to replace the existing state with something else. That's right. a political revolution. That's not even a social revolution. A political revolution means smashing the state, the existing state. So, I, you know, because what happened in Egypt, it's not that 
um, you know, because what was the political agency there? It was the Muslim Brotherhood. It was the Islamic fundamentalists. And they did take office briefly through election. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, like, divide the Egyptian military. They didn't replace the state, right? They were just put in as figureheads, and they, they were disposed of as quickly as possible and treated very brutally, by the way, right? Mor- Morsi, who was elected, then ended up dying in prison, right? Yeah. Because so I'm beginning to see, I saw, I mean, I understand everything you're saying, but when, go back to Bashkar, when he says, Sorab doesn't have a social base, he's not talking about. Muslim Brotherhood of, has a base. So that's my point right, there. Muslim right, Brotherhood right. actually had a base and yet they were not even able to. What he means is there weren't enough people with who could, within the sphere of the Republicans. And that could mean independent voters. That could mean. Uh, non-voters who are just workers um, to cause enough disruption for the Republicans to be forced to change their way of managing or to replace the current spate of Republicans. Right. I mean, I think that a few years earlier, maybe Bhaskar would have said that, you know, this perspective does have a base. I mean, it's a funny thing. So using Saurabh Amari as an example is tricky because he was a Trumpist who's now not a Trumpist. Right. And he's not not only not a Trumpist, but he's also not even a Republican necessarily, right? He's been Biden-pilled. And as he said at our event, he said that he recognizes that the Democratic Party is the party of responsible government and the Republicans are not. So that seems to me like he's just going to the Democrats, right? Yeah. Um, and so, right. And so, again, it's kind of like, well, could you have some kind of centrist, quasi, you know, social democracy, some kind of extreme right wing social democracy, meaning from the right wing of the Democratic Party? Right. Could you mm-hmm. have this? Could you, you know, well, you know, so in other words, I'm not sure what Bhaskar had in mind exactly, but I have a feeling that he had a few things in mind at the same time. At the most substantial level, it was Bhaskar's acknowledgement that there isn't a base for this in the Democratic Party either. Right, right. Because Although, he has to acknowledge that. In other words, he has to acknowledge the aspirational quality of the DSA project. Right, right. Yeah. The rank and file strategy, what have you, right? I think what he meant, I mean, I think at the in the moment, casually, I mean, he wasn't sitting there on a panel. He wasn't think, giving me... We, I, I just, we've been drinking wine. Be the most honest, experience. right, right, right. I'm sure it was, but I think what and he he's meant to you, so he knows where you're coming from. Right, right. That's true. Uh, I think what he meant was, Sorab's not going to be able to change the character of the Republican Party. He's, right. Uh, that's what he, what he. Because meant. you know, Bhaskar is saying we can't change the character of the Democratic Party. So how, how the fuck could? Uh, but he's not saying that because. Both Sorab and Bashkar are saying Biden's already the change. Biden yeah. is already the change. What was it that, that Bashkar said not that long ago? He said something like, Biden is the most progressive president of his lifetime. And how miserable it is to say that. In other words, how little one is saying when one is saying that. Right. Right. Um Right. So in other words, it's my my feeling is Biden's the worst president I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And and uh, and the second in line now would be George W. Bush. Like Biden is worse. 
Uh-huh. And my criteria is pretty simple. It's like we're involved in a, a proxy war in, in Ukraine that right. could blow up the world. Say, which criteria? Yeah. And, you know, uh, we are facing the overturning and the, the institute, in, inst- they're instituting uh, the next step, continuing Bush's uh, Patriot Act war on terror and, and turning it into a, a mechanism of control of the domestic population uh, in the West in general. So, so those two things combined things are, happening or worse in terms of incompetence. Oh, I'm not uh, 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 an incompetent president isn't necessarily going to be that bad. Right. I mean, like <laughs> exactly. Like, Trump was incompetent in many ways, but he wasn't doing as many bad things. Right. Yeah. Like, no, he it's worse in terms of creating worse conditions for socialism uh, for right. sure. Oh, I see and then, mean. Right. You know, and also for and by that, I don't even mean something like, oh, my particular pet project, just like we are losing our mobility and freedom and and the what I take to make life kind of comfortable and good, even in these conditions. I mean, we We're are losing- still in a crisis. Right. And so we had the 2008 crisis that never quite resolved, although it was the case that there was already kind of recovery and it was going on under Obama, but it really did flower under Trump. before. Yeah, the- no. Right. It, it only took right. what? Um, eight years for there to be well, a, that's about a, right. a, a partial recovery from. And, you know, after throwing, you know, to fully move it from the level of civil society into the state took mm-hmm. eight years. Um, right. You know, that's how I think to fully it. register it, even though we can't we can't forget that Obama was supposedly elected on the economic crisis, too. Well, of course he was. Yeah. And Trump uh, was also. Trump was. But, yeah, I don't know. Trump was elected in at the because of the failure no, but yeah, Brexit and right. Trump were both responses to the Yes, economy. absolutely. Yeah. They definitely were, right? And mm-hmm. there is this kind of delay. There is this kind of lag. And so we've had the COVID shock. And we've also had a kind of a semi-recovery under Biden. But it's a miserable recovery. And we've got these other phenomena like um, inflation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which long-term might be some kind of adjustment. You know, some kind of necessary adjustment. Who knows? Um, you know, it's unclear, I would say. So, uh, but again, so we, we're, we are in this place. So getting back to the question of like the left per se, mm-hmm. is that I think that just very spontaneously, most people, most of our listeners, most of our viewers will identify the left with progressivism. And I think I said this at the Sarvamari event in New York with sublation that, you know, I don't want to be the Marxist who denies the possibility of progressive capitalist reforms. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to just say, oh, no, Marxism tells you how impossible reforms are. No, they are possible. So the only issue is, how are they going to happen? And and are these progressive reforms? What does progressive reform really mean in this context? And so I feel like, you know, they can make certain changes. They do seem to be making certain changes. They also seem to be building on changes that Trump had begun. And that also could be traced further back even into the Obama era. Um, And so, you know, there is a kind of, but it's very thin and it's very fragile and it's also very murky, like how it's happening. And it's, it's, it's hidden behind this bipartisan strife, you know, like we're on the verge of a budget 
you know, conflict, government shutdown, drama, something or other. We've got other things going on like the UAW strike. And so tantalizingly, it's like mm-hmm. there seems to be a possibility of progressive reform of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So then how does it elude us? Right. Right. And I think that that becomes the thing that sucks the left in. Like your backstop against that is the Ukraine war and the police state. Mm-hmm. Those are some backstops against that. But let's say they didn't do the Ukraine war. Let's say they they did say, you know what, this, this surveillance state is counterproductive and out of control. And so we're not going to keep pushing this. Would that would that change how we're regarding it in terms of socialism and capitalism and etc.? It would not change my conviction that we still had to overcome the co- contradiction, the contradictory crisis that is capitalism. But I would not put Biden at the number one slot in my list of terrible presidents you know if that if he if he had if he hadn't brought us into this war that's so threatening in ukraine and if there wasn't a international movement started in the united states that under trump but but not by trump to suppress the the civil society to 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 rule out oppositional politics it was not it was not with covid no it was with trump that's it true. And it was 2017. Brexit. It they started in 2017. They blamed Russia for Brexit too. Let's not forget. Right. No, it was it was the populist movements that around the, the West and particularly Trump that then gave them the capacity or motivated the bureaucratic state. I think they even to, said that Macron's election when he replaced the socialist president in France exhibited like uh russian meddling right and and Even all of that by the way all of that was a lie there was no there was no i mean we've <laughs> now know that, that that there was no justification for tying trump or any of these things to look uh just the other day trudeau applauded a nazi in the parliament right in canada along with everyone else um they didn't know somehow that this 98-year-old Ukrainian Nazi was a Nazi, and they all said, oh, he's a hero, Canadian hero. And he apologized for it after the fact. And his next line was, and which only goes to show how we have to stand up to Russian disinformation. Da! Man, <laughs> um, I know. So, I know. like, so like uh, my, my, you know, like, uh, yeah, if, if Biden had taken office and said, oh, um, the attacks, uh, the, the you know the 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 whole thing about Russian disinformation is, was untrue. We need to roll back the censorship apparatus that was built by an uh, out of control state bureaucracy under Trump, uh, and we need to start they negotiating. Face. In other words, you'd think that they've had various off ramps. They've had various outs, right? In other words, they could have used the Mueller report, even right. right? They could have used like there was a Horowitz report, like a kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of internal audit, like a kind of ethical investigation of the Department of Justice. Right. Right. They could have they could have used these to say, you know what, things got out of hand. And then, you know, the public would have moved on and people would have happily forgotten. Right. So it's not like it wouldn't have been cripplingly embarrassing to them. And so, you know, but they also are capable of making mistakes. 
Well, I just think it works. I just think that the problem that they're facing, I think they're not entirely irrational. And I think the difficulty they're facing runs deeper and that they're actually seeing that this political crisis is going to come. And this is gearing up for it. This is trying to put the and developing the weapons and how to deal with with it during. The reason I say that they are not incapable of making mistakes is that they're they, we need to understand that they can talk themselves to things and they can right. believe their own bullshit mm-hmm. right so like even like i don't know i'll say this somewhat controversially like the the iraq war right the invasion mm-hmm. of iraq they might have believed that saddam hussein was doing Had something. weapons of mass destruction yeah. i mean of course it's a very elastic category it's biological chemical and nuclear so they might have had good information that the nuclear program was done, right? Mm-hmm. But they might have chosen to say, but we can't be absolutely sure. And why isn't he letting us see? And they can yep. acknowledge obvious things, which is that if you go in and see that he has no nuclear weapons, that might be bad for him vis-a-vis the Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but Chris, right? Chris, this is something I wanted to raise to you. Having read your book and loud. Mm-hmm. You are forgetting that the weapons inspectors were allowed in uh-huh. to Iraq in the last month before the invasion. That they, the weapons inspectors themselves said there were no weapons of mass destruction there, and that the UN declared the invasion to be illegal. You know, uh, the invasion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the, not, in other words, not justified by anything they found in the. So it's not true that Saddam refused to allow. UN inspectors in, he they, he did allow them in, in a in a timely enough manner that it could have been the justification not to invade. That, uh-huh, that, right, right, right. Uh-huh. That the, the 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 his kicking that that that's buying into Bush administration propaganda that they did have access to the to all the different areas that could have been weapons manufacturing in in Iraq during the few months before the invasion during so the that, immediate lead up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'd have to re-examine this history and think about it some more. I mean, my point there, I'm always interested, you know. You got involved in the peace movement in 2006. I was involved in it in 2003, right? Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I was not unsympathetic to the anti-war movement around Afghanistan. It's not that I was unsympathetic. It's that I wasn't particularly engaged and I was only engaged in the Iraq stuff. Um, Well, because it was this massive thing phenomenon and because my students were involved in a way they weren't quite yet before 2003 right and and you know and in many respects they only got more involved going up to 2006 Mm -hmm. but i was there i went to the demos and whatnot and i was paying attention to the news i was and i was paying Mm -hmm. close attention to the rhetoric of the administration and i was sympathetic to things like the valerie plame affair and whatnot Oh yeah. So even that is a more complicated story. Yeah, than, it is. Than the liberal narrative. I, I, right? I, I may have the false impression, but my feeling at the time was that in order to be a dedicated anti-war activist, what you needed to do was read the New York Times and the Guardian. Mm-hmm. Not because the New York Times and the Guardian were saying this is an illegal war that needs to be stopped, or because but because if you read closely you would find out that the invasion of Iraq, the war that there had been a war against Iraq through the no-fly zone. Oh, for, of course. Right. Continuously. And I right. didn't figure it out in the book. Yeah, right. right. I guess my rhetorical point, but I do think that it has substance. 
mm-hmm. is, you know, a lot of capitalist policy is venal and crooked and criminal and also also incompetent, but also delusional. Um, a lot of it is, but I think that we, you know, you know, people use this language, right? We have to steel man the argument, right? Right, I agree. And so I do think that we have to grant the rationality of capitalist politics, at least on some level, at least at a kind of a base value level. The delusional character of capitalist politics is, from to my mind, operating at a much deeper level. And so that's why I say things like, you know, can you tell the difference between them lying to you, them believing their own lies or them sincerely thinking that it's the truth? You know, like, where do you where do you do that? Yeah, no, I I do think that there's a good chance that they uh, on some level believe their own lies. Like these people who talk about the threat of disinformation, they do believe or even Fauci with COVID at some level. He also thinks I mean, he does like, you know, like massage things and uh, do this so i wanted to say something in response to the people who scream bloody murder in our last video yeah i want to say about you know the vaccines and masks because people were like oh chris katron should stay in his lane and not you know comment on things um as if there can't be public sphere discussion of uh, you know people Mm. Yeah, um, there was one comment in particular on YouTube where like he's really good on politics, he's terrible about COVID. And then they link to this guy who argues, I think, disingenuously or at least in error, that that there the fact that there weren't any real studies done to show that the vaccine stopped transmission was no big uh, deal. And the, the reality is that the the vaccines, the studies that were done that show that there was a it it slowed or stopped transmission were done in the very early days right on the very first variant right uh and that it was known that the that there would be mutations and it was also known that 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 study was probably not adequate and then as things went along it became more and more well known that the vaccine was doing very little to stop transmission and yet the political message was still if you don't get vaccinated, you're killing people. If you right. don't get well, I also thought that it stopped transmission, like you know, for a few months or something, right? In other words, they always mm-hmm. had like a qualified notion. So there was that comment. The other comment was about like condoms and HIV, and I know mm-hmm. that we've talked about that in the past. And so the last time we talked about it, we talked about it in a very abbreviated way mm-hmm. that was not really the point. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that Fauci said that you had to convince people wearing the condom that they were protecting themselves, whereas actually they were protecting their partners. Right. In other words, the penetrative partner is not at very high risk of catching HIV anyway, but you have to scare them into thinking that if they don't wear a condom, they'll catch HIV. Ah, ah, right. right. Whereas really you're protecting their partners. Right. And it's right. very much like the masks. In other words, you have to make people feel like they're protecting themselves when they're wearing the masks. But what they're really doing is protecting others. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the best way they're doing that is by not going out at all. Right. And the best way to do that is to not go out at all, because, of course, wearing the mask doesn't protect you because when you breathe, the, the air comes in on the sides. When you breathe in, when you breathe out, it goes through the mask. When you breathe in, it comes around the sides. Right. Even with the N95, right? Because the N95 is meant to be worn for a brief period of time for people who are working with hazardous chemicals in an industrial setting. It's not meant to be worn for eight hours or something 
it's not it doesn't work like that right and it right. Yeah. and it protects you against like things like in the air like particles and chemicals it doesn't protect you against viruses right, right. in that way right and so again it, it gives you more protection than a surgical mask breathing in but it still doesn't ultimately right so all that they can do is say you know do this and that but the real message is don't go out don't socialize don't socialize. right don't do what they call community spread listen we went about a half hour over what i normally would say okay. we would do so let's take five minutes do you want to take five ten minutes yep. and then do another yes hour i in the in the next section i want to talk to you about hegel and be more philosophical about the um, yeah and but and also i guess before we sign off here i just want to say i think that Zizek said something that I feel is intuitively correct, and you tell me if you think this is true, that if there's going to be reforms to capitalism that that are going to be for the for the best, you know, in a humane way, mm -hmm. that they're not going to occur without a left, without a struggle for a utopian dip, other dimension. They're, well, that's an old idea, that, right? You need to threaten revolution to get reform. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we can talk about that in terms of how we understand history. In other words, how we understand like the 20th century, how we understand things like the FDR New Deal. Like, why did that happen? Where did that come from? Yes. I guess I, I particularly think of it in, in this moment where we need to be able to say uh, extreme things or point beyond the, what is and have the freedom to do so. Uh, if we're going to be able to even fight against, you know, uh, let's say lo future lockdowns or if we're going to be. I'm unhappy with that kind of formulation because I do think it's what we were talking about earlier, that the left has become a matter of extreme rhetoric and mm -hmm. the protest demo culture and mm -hmm. screaming very loudly and protesting very fervently. And I feel like that ignores the fact that the old socialist left was actually relatively quiet. I mean, in other words, I always like to say Vladimir Lenin never attended a protest demo. Neither did no. Rosa Luxemburg. Now, of course, that's not true. That's a kind of an ad absurdum kind of point. But this is not what they thought. This is not where they thought the action was. Right. 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 I mean, they gave speeches, but to very well-behaved crowds. Mm -hmm. They weren't agitators. And, you know, they were sympathetic and they might have gone out on the street when there were demonstrations, but mostly to figure out what was going on. In other words, they weren't like mounting the barricades. They weren't like leading the street demo. Like that wasn't what they thought, right? They thought what you do is you quietly organize the working class until you're ready to take power, right? So it wasn't right. this, this, this kind of spectacular stuff that we associate and that really has more to do with right-wing politics, by the way. Oh, yeah. That kind of street action. That's fascist. Like street action. I always like to point out that youth movements, before mm -hmm. the 60s, youth movements were almost always right-wing. Mm -hmm. Like people running out on the street and smashing things up, that was always the right. It was like nationalists. It was those, those kinds of people. Right. That was not left wing. <laughs> that was not. So, you know, again, we have a very twisted, warped notion of the struggle for socialism.
All right, I'm going to leave it there. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>